December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode 33, and I am Scott Gardner. And I am Michael Bailey, wondering if Scott was about to say this is welcome to an episode of Back to the Bins. This was Scott struggling to remember what the hell show he's recording. (laughs) Hi, how's it going? (laughs) I was right about that. How's it going, sir? Hey, it's fine. As long as I know what show I'm I'm here for, I'm good. (laughs) I just want to say before we get into it that it was nice having lunch with you the other day. Yes, it was. That was awesome. Mexican food. Mm Mm-hmm. You had the what? The tamales? I had a plate full of tamales. Ooh, did I pay for it later? (laughs) (laughs) Did it it help that we went out to eat like a couple hours later, too, which I didn't eat all that much, but... uh... I had a beer that night. I haven't had a beer in like two years. So. <laughs> Got a nice little buzz on. It was nice. I wasn't driving, so it was all good. Oh, man, that drive home. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, oh, yeah, especially with a plate full of tamales and the hot Georgia yeah. sun. Yes, it was, a, it was a very good thing. I was alone in the car. Alone with my podcast in the car. So there was nobody to sit next to me and go, Jesus Christ, <laughs> crack a window. Speaking of which, did you see what I posted on Facebook? I think people think I'm making this up, but I swear to God, I'm not. Oh, yeah, that, I, I, I saw what you posted. Yeah. yeah. On that drive home, I, I saw something that I guess falls into the realm of, of like the cryptozoological. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool, except now people think I'm like out of my gourd. But anyway, that's a subject for a whole nother time. What are we talking about? We're talking about the All-Star Squadron. Yes, kind of um, kind of once again shaking the format up as we are always looking for the next best way to do the show instead of um, instead of doing two issues 
a week, uh, Scott came up with what I thought was a really good idea, because uh, it kind of kills two birds with one stone, and it kind of preps us for what's coming down the pike eventually, mm-hmm. is uh, doing an issue of the All-Star Squadron, and then jumping into the DeLorean, you know, hitting 88 miles an hour, seeing some serious shit, and going to the future, where we will be covering the Huntress backups from the Wonder Woman series, mm-hmm. which will lead into us eventually doing Infinity Incorporated, which was always kind of the plan. So I think it works out a lot better that way. Plus, along the way, we can kind of talk about some other little things that we want to talk about as well. Yeah, some that's... Earth 2-related stories, so... Yeah, that's what I was going to throw in, is that it's not so much just the Huntress, although that'll that'll be the bulk of it for a little bit, because that Huntress run runs for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it'll be it'll be the Huntress backups in Wonder Woman. But then also, you know, like like Mike said, we'll make little pit stops along the way um, for other stories because right off the bat, we've got a couple of uh, very very good um, Brave and the Bold, oh, yes. uh, you know, that are Earth Two related. You know, right in our wheelhouse, we've got one with the Earth Two Robin. We've got another one with the Huntress coming along. So. You know, we'll be making those little pit stops. So, you know, all the folks that have been emailing us about, hey, what about this story? What about that story? You know, you guys forgot this, or are you ever going to cover that? Don't worry. This is that that second slot. Rather than doing two issues, that second slot becomes the repository for all the other stories that we want to get to, because we still want to get to them. Yes, very much so. So I guess we're kicking things off this week with All-Star Squadron number four. Mm-hmm. has a cover date of December 1981 and a really nice Rich Buckler and Dick Giordano cover featuring, uh, well, the heroes slapping the hell out of each other. And uh, I'm sorry, I see Wonder Woman and Liberty Bell fighting and I and I think, cat fight! Cat fight! Mm-hmm. Awesome. They need to be covered in jello and in a pit. But other than that, <laughs> it's awesome. This story, it's it's kind of neat. Roy Thomas goes old school because uh, it has Day of the Dragon King, Chapter 1, and then Chapter 2, Aftermath of Infamy, and then Chapter 3, What Price Vengeance. So I, I kind of like that calling back to the old days when each uh, chapter, if the uh, comic had more than, uh, only had one story, that it would be split up in those three different sections. That was really cool. Uh, it was written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Rich Buckler, inked and embellished by Jerry Ordway, edited uh, as the first three issues by Len Wein. And in the synopsis, we have the newly formed All-Star Squadron travel to Pearl Harbor, and for the first time, the heroes get to compare notes and talk about recent events. Two members are missing. Plastic Man, who had to get back to Washington and report to President Roosevelt, and Phantom Lady, who had to find her rather worried father. When the All-Stars reached the naval base, shock and grief nearly overwhelmed them, as the full extent of the sneak attack becomes clear. The armed forces on the ground begin to fire on the All-Stars, mistaking them for the enemy. With the help of the Thunderbolt, the hostilities end, and the All-Stars meet with the military officials in charge. After some debate, they decide, at Liberty Bell's behest, to take the fight to the Japanese. With the exception of the Shining Knight and Starman, the heroes head off to the Japanese aircraft carriers to the north. Meanwhile, Danette and Sir Justin visit her injured brother. The two run into uh, Slugger Dunn, who leads Danette to, her, to Rod's bedside. 
He warns Danette that even though Rod is still alive, he is in a coma, and the doctors don't know when he'll come out of it. After even more debate, God, there's a lot of fucking debate in this issue, the All-Stars decide to head to Wake Island, believing that location is a likely target for Japanese attack. However, on a small island between where the All-Stars were and Wake, a Japanese base receives a visit from... Jesus Christ, the Dragon King. I don't like this guy at all. Sorry. Who had been sent by the High Command in anticipation of an attack by Superman and his ilk the help of his the fabled Holy Grail. The Dragon King uses a dynamo powered by science and magic to magnify his powers and direct it. He activates the machine, which sends waves of energies towards the oncoming heroes. The effects of the energy are immediate. Superman, Spectre, and Wonder Woman feel a sense of unease and dizziness, while Dr. Fate goes bug shit crazy and attacks Hawkman, and Green Lantern turns into even more of a dick and drops Johnny Quick and the other heroes he was carrying down on the island, where a squad of Japanese soldiers are waiting and keeps them in an emerald dome so the Japanese soldiers can pretty much just pick them off at their leisure. Superman wonders what has happened to them and where the sudden desire to see his comrades die comes from. The Spectre theorizes since he and Superman, along with Wonder Woman, are not human. They have more of a resistance, adding that they will soon pass under the spell of the strange emanations. On the ground, Liberty Bell uses a handy piece of driftwood to, well, I wrote to stun Green Lantern, she pretty much just throws it and knocks, his shit, knocks him on his ass. Great. And allows the group to defend themselves. Back in the air, Johnny Thunder takes off to attack the American forces at Wake Island with the reluctant Thunderbolt. The Dragon King watches this from his view screen, taking pride in his achievement. And when one of his men asks how long the heroes will be under their control, he replies that the wave's effects will last from the time they enter the energy zone until the time they leave. Suddenly, Dr. Fate chases Hawkman out of the energy zone and comes out of his murderous funk. Realizing what was going on, Hawkman flies back into the zone and tricks the dominated heroes, including Green Lantern, whom Hawkman somehow convinces to grab Liberty Bell and the others, into following him to safety. Hawkman's plan works, but the All-Stars realizing that they can't take the battle to Japan like they had planned to, lest they become servants of the Axis. Not far away, the Dragon King escapes into a submarine. One of his subordinates asks why they don't increase the range of the Grail's power. The Dragon King calls his underling a fool, adding that there are limits even to their power, but only for the present. He vows that one day he will take the battle to America's shores. At the same time, Hawkman muses on how he needs to get to the Yucatan to find Shira, but not before he has to drop a bombshell on both the Justice Society and the All-Star Squadron. The end. (laughs) Um, Historical notes before uh, Scott gets into how he felt about this issue. Uh, During the flight to Pearl Harbor, Hawkman mentions the fact that he is worried about his fiancée, Shira Sanders, who's been on an archaeological dig in the Yucatan. This is a bit of a foreshadowing. 
to the next uh, storyline that takes place in issues five and six. He also mentions the fact that he knows something about Axis activity in Mexico, which is a reference to All-Star Comics number nine, February, March, 1941, where the Justice Society traveled at the behest of the FBI chief to fight German and Italian spies since the U.S. couldn't act there officially. I always thought it was kind of cool that the government kept trying to use the mystery men who were on the shady side of the law anyways to do their black ops work, essentially. (laughs) Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt makes his first appearance in the series, not counting the preview in Justice League of America number 193, and Johnny Thunder still sucks. Anyways... As an NTT subservient to Johnny Thunder, he was never an official member of either the All-Star Squadron or the Justice Society, which really is a shame because Johnny would have been pretty useless to both groups without him. He's pretty much useless anyways. That's that's just messed up. Because Johnny Thunder has brings nothing to the table. <laughs> exactly. So the, the Thunderbolt should should at least... Oh, that's just wrong. Well, it's like get... making Wonder Woman the secretary. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Uh, Libby. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm just shaking my head out loud. <laughs> Libby steps forward and really takes charge in this issue, which may or not may not have been a foreshadowing as her time eventually as a in a certain position in the uh, All-Star Squadron. This particular scene is significant since Libby took on Hawkman, who was the chairman of the JSA at the time. The Shining Knight notes that Danette is warm to the touch. Foreshadowing. Uh, DC wanted to use the... Avo- uh, <laughs> DC wanted to avoid the use of the words Jap, despite it being rather common during the Second World War. For the first few issues, they used the word Nip, which is so much fucking better. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually short for Nippon, which is how the Japanese refer to their homeland. Now, let me ask you something. Does that okay. bug you? Because it bugs the shit out of me reading what? this. What, that they won't use Jap, but they'll use Nip? Yeah, because yeah, it, it comes off almost almost as like a, like one of those comic book substitute swear words. Like you know? spit? Yeah. And it scared the spit out of me. It's like, yeah. just just tell me that it scared the shit out of you, because you're not <laughs> fooling me. I know what you're saying here. Burr so yeah, loved spit. He yeah. loved the hell out of spit. I ju- it just bugs me. I mean, I realize that they didn't want, you know, to get accused of any sort of racism or, or drudging up, you know, whatever. But at the same rate, I mean, come on. You're, you're writing a World War II book set in World War II, you know, if you're going to be faithful to every other minute detail, then be faithful to that one, too. Come on. Yeah, well, you know, it's the fine line that these people have to kind of ride, unfortunately, because we we, we aren't, you know, we like to think of ourselves as pretty advanced as a society, but we can't accept the fact that things were different in the past. It's almost like we're embarrassed by our behavior and in certain cases i can kind of see that but if you're going to be authentic to a time period Mm -hmm. i'm sorry put your politically correct sensitivities you know in your little in in that little chest at the end of your bed that you keep your blankie and, and the idea that mom and dad really loved each other and just read the fucking story and get over it you know i mean god that pisses me off was that too harsh? No, I feel exactly the same way. <laughs> Precisely the same way. 
I mean, I, I'm not going to go around throwing, you know, like, Kraut and Jap as, as a slur. But if I'm reading a story set in World War II, I understand the relevance and the context right. that the things are being used. Because that, that was just how every not everyone, but most of the country felt. And it was socially acceptable. Was that right? Well, I'm not going to get into that debate because I didn't live back then. You know, I, 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 I don't want to sit in judgment of us. You know, there are certain things I'll sit, sit quote-unquote, sit in judgment of, but certain things like that, I'm just like, okay, we're not like that now. It's like when people want to complain about the attack, you know, the, the dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, I wouldn't have had a grandfather if Hiroshima and Nagasaki didn't happen. Right. You know, Papa John was sitting on a boat waiting to invade, and he was going to die. I mean, <laughs> they were projecting casualties. Oh, man, I don't know. I, I forget the exact number, but it was tens of thousands of soldiers were going to die. Mm-hmm. And do I feel bad for the civilians? Yes, but, you know, my dad got to grow up with his father. And I'm always going to feel like, yeah, just stop bitching about something that happens, you know, over 60 years ago at this point. <laughs> Let me kick it out of the soapbox. Ah, there we go. Okay. <laughs> guess we should talk about funny books since, you know. Yeah, what were we talking about again? <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that if we thought we got letters about the uh, fan elitism... <laughs> Oh, my God, don't bring that up again. <laughs> no, I'm not bringing it up to talk about it. I'm just saying, I wonder what kind of letters we're going to get for some of the things we're going to be saying. Oh, I, I I know. I already know we are, because last <laughs> last time around, uh, you reminded me that, that eventually we're going to get into the whole thing with the uh, internment camps, and I'm already bracing myself for the, for the deluge of what the fuck is wrong with that guy emails that we're going to get, but I don't care. I, I have very strong opinions about it, and I'm not going to shy away from it. But that's way on down the road, so we'll worry about that bridge when we get to it to burn it. Uh, Superman muses on how it had only been three years since he was the only active mystery man. This was a reference to the fact that Superman made his first appearance in the spring of 1938 and how all heroes derived from his debut, even Batman. Remember that. <laughs> uh, that's a little more editorializing on my part. While mention is made of the near-simultaneous attacks on Wake Island, Guam, and the Philippines, as well as Pearl Harbor, no mention is made on the attacks of the British colonies in Thailand and Malaya, or however you pronounce that, because I don't know how to. Uh, the Dragon King re references Hitler's possession of the Spear of Destiny in relation to Tojo's acquisition of the Holy Grail. Hitler used the Spear of Destiny in an attempt to invade England when it was stopped by the heroes who would make up the founding members of the Justice Society of America. This story was told in DC Special Number 29, which you can hear Scott and I talk about on a past episode. And it was awesome. Yes, it was. Uh, later, the Dragon King mentions Dr. Daka, who is the fictional head of the Imperial Japanese Undercover Operatives. Dr. Daka was taken from the 1943 Columbia Pictures serial Batman. It was played by actor J. Carol Nash. And he went on to be in Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, right? <laughs> exactly. And, thank God, 
Despite his vow, the Dragon King never appeared in another issue of All-Star Squadron. Aw, come on. He's kind of cool. He reminds me of one of those Republic serial villains, and I can't uh, remember I, I which th- one. Maybe I think that was the intent. Yeah. But but is it the Captain Marvel one that has a I villain that looks like this? I can't remember. See, they all the blur together Marvel for me so. because that movie, um, J-Men Forever, the, yeah. Vi- yeah, the villain in that one keeps changing outfits throughout the entire thing because they pieced it together with all this footage of all these different serials. So he eventually is like every villain from those old serials. So I can't remember which villain went with which one now, but I think he looks like the one from the Captain Marvel serial, uh, serial, but I can't remember. And my final historical note is that this issue sees the first appearance of the letters column dubbed All-Star Comments. And, uh... I am working on getting the blog we kind of referenced uh, in the in the last episode together, so that we can have kind of a secondary place to have indexes and such. So, if we're talking about a particular panel or something, we can actually have a scan of it for y'all to see, in case you don't have the book in front of you. I'm working on that right now. Not quite ready to announce the URL for it. But uh, Scott has seen a little bit of what I've done and uh, hasn't said anything negative yet, so I'm going to take that as a good thing. Um, unless he's just biding his time to <laughs> make me cry. But, oh, no. But we did have letters this time out from the uh, the All-Star Squadron's preview effort in the pages of Ju- Justice League of America number 193. So that was kind of cool to read through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some good stuff in there. I like the different. I like that uh, somebody uh, had the same problem I had with the Harry that was mentioned in the preview, thinking that yeah. it was uh, Harry Truman and it was actually Harry Hopkins. I, I thought that was interesting that I wasn't the only one to make that mistake. But uh, we'll, we'll have stuff like this, like all written out for you. So, like I said, in case you don't have the issue to read along with, as some of you do, um, you know, you can get on in the fun too. So, what do you got, Scott? Oh, my goodness. Where to start? Okay, well, starting at the beginning here. That's um, a good place to start. I would like to point out that awesome as this cover is, this never happens. Damn it. I hate when (laughs) when they do this to me because I was looking at this cover going, I can't remember what the the story is in this. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. They're all going to throw down. And you got Superman versus Robot Man. You got the Thunderbolt smacking the crap out of Hawkman. You got the Spectre versus the Atom, which talk about a one-sided battle there. <laughs> you know, all these great images on this cover, and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to rock. But all we really get inside is Hawkman and Dr. Fate get into it a little bit, and that's pretty much it. So I was yeah. disappointed that we didn't get the full, you know, the full-blown knockdown, drag-out, you know, Justice Society versus the All-Stars that's promised to us on the cover it was promised damn it promised it promised on the splash page on page one somebody needs to holler out to wonder woman and go hey bitch i know that invisible plane holds more than one person because you got <laughs> you got all these other guys that are tasked with dragging along all the people that can't fly and here's wonder woman how many people does that plane hold? I'm I, at least two people, but I'm yeah. I'm thinking I've seen more than two people over the years in that plane. So 
kind of rude. Comfortable with ro- how Robot Man is riding Doctor Fate. <laughs> that looks kind of wrong. Does this it's remind not you of as wrong as Johnny the way Johnny Quick is riding his naked thunderbolt. <laughs> yeah. Um, does this remind you of that Neil Adams Superman cover though, where all the characters Very are much. flying? Yeah. Even the coloring in the background. Yeah. I almost wonder if the coloring in the background is purposeful to to put us in mind of that Neil Adams picture. Okay, yeah. This is great on its own. Don't get me wrong, but I really thought of that when I opened it up today to read it. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I love the way that Superman looks on the bottom of page two, the next to last panel. Very, very Joe Schuster. Oh, yeah. And in profile. I love that. I have and a feeling that was more Jerry Ordway's inking than Rich Buckler's penciling, though. Very likely, yeah. Because Ordway could do a good Schuster Superman. Oh, likewise, right across from it on page three, that's a very uh, Bob Kane-ish looking Batman in profile, looking at uh, Hawkman's butt as they fly away there, Hawkman and uh, Starman. Adventures of Superman, man, what issue was it? It was like number 444. It was the same month that Action Comics 600 came out. Mm -hmm. There was a guest appearance of Batman in that title. And there was a page, and it was amazing to see how he did it. It was three panels at the top of the page. And in the first panel was full-on Bob Kane Batman. That's the one where they met back up about the, the notebook, the scrap, right? Yeah, the scrapbook. Yeah, and, and they, this, they reveal each other, or they find out that they know each other's secret identities. Yeah, I love that issue. And in the second panel... You got a good-looking Batman, and in the third panel, you have Jerry Ordway Batman. Mm-hmm. And I was just impressed with his ability to go from like, okay, here, here's Bob Kane, and here's me. And it just, it, it, it just boggles my mind what a talented artist Jerry Ordway is. So uh, I'll probably be going on again and again and again about that. <laughs> I love that issue that you referenced, though. Oh, yeah, Although that issue. was the longest three days in in comics, I think, because when they meet up in whatever issue that was, Batman says, "All right, meet me back on this rooftop in three days." And it's, <laughs> I'm I'm certain that like several months went by. I'm pretty yeah. sure it did. It's pretty crazy. Let's see what else we got. Oh, page four, bottom of page four, Superman. Racing a train. I never get tired of seeing stuff like this, and this is a great image. Do you like the boots? I do like the boots. And it got me to thinking, I wish we could get more Superman stories set in this era. Because when you think about it, you know, how how cool would that be? I mean, this was back in, in a time where, you know, it, it was the turn of the century America. And here you've got Superman. You know, mm-hmm. out there in the Midwest, I would just love to see more stories told of that era of, of Superman. I, I think that could be some really exciting stuff. But, you know, Superman in an era where where people still got around by train. Mm-hmm. I just think that's neat. I, I, that really fires my imagination. Well, I, not I only that, it's a more rough and tumble Superman. It's yeah. not a guy that can fly into space. It's not a guy that... Uh, I guess, unfortunately to you, can throw people into the sun. <laughs> it, you know, as we'll see later in this, oh, in just a few pages, you know, he is not as invulnerable as his then-modern counterpoint. And I always yeah. thought that was a more interesting version of the character 
because I'm sorry, even when you're seeing Superman on the ropes, you know he's going to come out of it, you know? Right. And, you know, really, if you're reading a Superman story from this era, you know he's going to win. But there's more drama, I think, when... And I'm not and I'm not calling to depower Superman. I'm not. I'm just saying that one of the great things about this era is that you didn't know what was going to hurt him. You didn't know if a big bomb blast was going to knock him on his ass and stun him for a little bit, whereas later he'd be like, hmm, this needs more salt, you know, as he chews a piece of former <laughs> kryptonite. So... I agree with you completely. There was a piece of dialogue on page 19 that I had had to look over several times. I I think it does make a certain amount of sense now that I look at it again, but it was where uh, some of the heroes, you know, they've passed through the energy barrier. You know, the, the, the thing that it's basically the demarcation line, you know, Uh where if they cross it, then they'll become you know, agents of the Axis powers or whatever, thanks to the Grail and the Spear of Destiny. But there was a part where uh, the Atom says, it must be those nutty rays. He says, the nips below are brainwashing them somehow. And it, it just didn't make sense to me at first when I kept reading it. I kept thinking, does he mean broadcasting, that they must be broadcasting the rays somehow? And then I realized that he, the them that he refers to is his fellow all-stars. He doesn't yeah. mean the Rays, but it just reads wonky. I, I kind of wish that it, 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 instead it said, you know, the, the nips below must be broadcasting them somehow and, and made it tied back into the Rays. Mm-hmm. It's just a little, it's it's an awkward piece of dialogue. Now, I'll agree with that. You know, and, and you bring up an interesting point. You say, you know, on page 19, and, you know, very soon page 19 would mean there's only three more pages to this story. Right. <laughs> But this thing goes on for six more pages. And I got to tell you, I love the meatiness to these issues. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it took me, like, I have a half-hour lunch period. And it took me, like, 25 minutes of that lunch period to read and absorb all of this. I mean, I could have read it faster, but I'm really trying to take my time with these issues. Yeah. And, you know, just not only because, you know, I want to have things to talk about, want to notice, you know, little things in the background and all that. But also, I really want to enjoy this series as we're going through it. Because it occurred to me today that once we're past All-Star Squadron and Infinity Incorporated, that's going to be a really sad time period. Oh, <laughs> uh, there's plenty of other awesomeness uh, out there, there for us. There is, to have- but... You know, to me, this is like the high water mark. And, you know, we've got a lot of other cool stuff in the years to come to talk about. We've got the Justice Society miniseries from 91 and this 10-issue series from 92 and 93. You know, Starman, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I really want to, I want to, I want to take the time to enjoy this so that I don't take it for granted, if that makes any sense. Well, that was one of the reasons, too, that I wanted us to slow down to just one issue of All-Star per show so that we could do exactly that, you know, so that we're, we're really getting a chance to delve into each individual issue and, and really uh, pull everything out of it and really enjoy it uh, rather than you know, doing any sort of rush because you've got to get through both of them and then trying to get to other features in the episode and things like that, too. So, yeah, I feel you. I I feel exactly the same way. I will feel a certain sense of sadness when it's all over with. But at the same rate, I I really do maintain that we've got some other, 
you know, equally awesome stuff down the road. Not the least yeah. of which is Infinity Inc. I, I don't think oh, that you yeah. have the fondness for it that I do, but I love Infinity Inc. I really I, do. I enjoyed the hell out of that series. I like it a lot. I love the first ten issues. I thought the first ten issues were fantastic. And then, unfortunately, I think it took them a, like a couple issues after Don Newton passed away to mm-hmm. kind of find their footing again. But see, I, I like where I, I don't want to give too much away, but there's there's a major character on that team who goes through a, a major transformation. And man, did I like what they did with that guy. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that again when that happens, because that's a character I wish somebody, you know, I'm not a big fan of bringing back dead characters. I'm really not, but this one in particular was su- done such a disservice mm-hmm. that I, I would I borrow. About. Yeah. I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody that doesn't know because it, it would be a major reveal. But uh, yeah, if you, if you know the character that I'm talking about, I, I just think that they, you know, such great work was done to take him from being kind of a, eh, you know, kind of character to, wow, you know, Really steps up, really becomes interesting, very dynamic, very cool, right up there with some of my favorite characters. And then not long after that, he's off. And I'm like, God damn it, you know? <laughs> so now I wish, you know, I've, I've wished for many, many years that this character could somehow, through the magic of comic book trickery, could come back and and step up, you know, to the glory that I think could have potentially been his way back when. But that's way on down the road. Well... Wrapping up my notes for this particular issue, I really just have one more, and that's on page 22, panel 3. Liberty Bell is a dirty fighter. (laughs) Right in the boys. That's not cool, sis. That's not cool at all. But, you know. You said page 23? What are you talking about? 22. 22, panel 3. 22, panel 3. Oh, yeah, she... Come on, is there really such a thing as a fair fight to the guy shooting at you? I guess not, but oh man. Anyway, my uh, my notes are pretty pretty basic. Not 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 that they're not good, but the, you know I just have a few of them. Um, I like the interaction between Johnny Quick and the Flash because mm-hmm. he's such a Johnny Quick is such a cocky character, and I shouldn't like that, but. I get the feeling, and I've always got the feeling that he was just doing that kind of like Booster Gold because he's got some insecurities about himself. Yeah, very much so. So, you know, he has to be like that, and it's just cool to see because he calls him his idol, and he's a little cocky to him, but there's still a lot of respect there that I that I kind of dig, and it's amazing that I get that out of, like, one freaking panel. Uh, page four, again, reiterating what you said, love Superman chasing a train. And then he talks about it like, seems like only yesterday my main recreation was fighting crooks or something like racing trains, which is really no contest. <laughs> I love the reaction of the heroes upon getting to Pearl Harbor. Uh, page 7, the, pan- the little individual panels of all of them looking shocked and horrified. That is That was amazing. That was just... I'm glad Roy Thomas is taking the time to kind of deal with these things on a day-by-day basis because to gloss over that, I think, would take away something from this series because, to me, I love the fact 
that their first decision as a team is we're taking this shit to the Japanese and we're taking them down. You know, this right. war will be over today. And that comes to like my biggest <sighs> debate with myself over the Spear of Destiny and Holy Grail thing. Whereas the Spear of Destiny keeps the heroes out of Europe, the Holy Grail, uh, which should have been a woman, because I've, I've seen the Da Vinci Code. I know what's going on. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> which was apparently a bunch of horse shit anyways. But, um, but on one hand, it is kind of cheesy to think about, like, oh, they just got these mystical relics, and that's how we're going to keep you know, the heroes from, you know, going in and kicking ass day two of World War Two and winning the war in a couple of days. But the thing I always come back to on that is it's a necessary evil of the series because I think it would be disrespectful to have the heroes wrap up World War Two in a microsecond uh, to the people that actually fought in that war and died in that war. And while it may seem hokey, I think it works very, very well. Because, you know, what are the two things that are Superman's weaknesses? Kryptonite and magic. So if you're going to keep them out, it's going to be one of two things. And this is magic. And I like that the magic took a while to have an effect on him, too. That was kind of neat. I liked that. But, you know, as much as it kind of makes me go, eh, I'll always fall back on we need this to happen because it, it just it just has to work that way. You know, there, there's no other real way to do it. And I don't like what James Robinson retconned about the Spear of Destiny and all that in the Golden Age. It's the only part of that story I don't like because I think it takes away from some of the charm of this series because as much as this is kind of... Uh, quote-unquote, realistic look at how the heroes would have acted during World War II. It's also a comic book about heroes in the Golden Age, and there should be, you know, the theme song to these episodes, I think, has that sense of fun and adventure right? uh, that that era of comics had, and I think you need to maintain that. And by having it, it's like, well, the Spear of Destiny and the Holy Grail keep us from going into Japan and Germany, but we'll still battle on and fight the Axis, you know, you know, as saboteurs try to take out the mainland. And I think there are more saboteurs in this comic in 60-some-odd issues than there were in the entirety of World War II in the United <laughs> States. But it's a nice thing to fall back on. It's, it's the Batman kicking the hell out of some street scum who is either trying to mug or rape somebody. You can see that scene again and again and still kind of enjoy it because it's what Batman does. Well, that's what heroes do. We fight saboteurs. How many saboteurs? Oh, there's bunches of them. So, <laughs> All of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I feel you. You know, I know that we've talked about this before, and for the life of me, I don't know what is wrong with my memory that I can't remember what Robinson changes in the Golden Age. I can never remember that, what he changes the the MacGuffin to. But see, here's my thing. I I like that there's a a quasi-scientific explanation given for why Superman didn't just round up a posse, 
go grab Hitler, Mussolini, and and Tojo and end the fucking thing, which is yeah. what something he did in one of his one of the issues I can Look remember. Magazine, it yeah, was a comic strip where he it was actually he grabbed Hitler and Stalin. This was before we were allies with Russia in World mm-hmm. War Two, and brought them before the League of Nations. So. That's right. Yeah. So I, I like that there's a reason given why he can't do that. But I've never been crazy about it being the Spear of Destiny and the Holy Grail, only because I still don't understand how Hitler, of all people, can can wield a, a Christian um, religious symbol for his own ends. I just don't quite get Maybe if it was like the Ark of the Covenant... I, you know, and come to think of it, I guess I can kind of buy the the spear of death. I I think the one that bothers me is the Holy Grail. What what the hell powers does the Holy Grail have that would allow the Japanese to utilize it to create some sort of a barrier to keep out the? I I just that part of it doesn't wash with me somehow. Now, if they were using it to like make a race of like immortal. You know, super soldiers or something. You know, then I could buy that. Yeah, but... Like they're all drinking from the cup and becoming yeah. immortal and going out there and getting blown apart, but still coming because they, you know, they can't die. That would be cool. Actually, that would be really cool. What it? Well, is. you know. Also, the, what it, what was the deal with there being mystic runes on the Holy Grail? <laughs> I think you know it, it's really amazing how and. I, I think it comes from like the fantasy background. I really, do, I really think it does because if you read some fantasy, and I haven't read a whole lot of fantasy, but it seems to me that fantasy will mix Christianity and the and the Norse mythology and the you know the Greco-Roman gods and all that into like all, you know like like putting them all in a pot, shaking it up, and pouring it back out. So I think it comes from something like that, where you know, yes, it, the Holy Grail—it's you know the, the the last the cup from the Last Supper, right? Basically, uh, you know that that will have all these mystic you know properties because Jesus drank out of it, but it's going to be covered in runes, and <laughs> yeah. it was but, given to him by Odin. But 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 you know you could kind of. You could kind of see where that's coming from because what if the 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 Grail passed into the hands of the Norse, and they kind of used it for their own ends, inscribing runes on it uh, until it was discovered by you know the early Christians again. I mean, it, it can kind of work, but you really have to stretch it. Yeah, but I see I see your point exactly, though. I really do. I, I don't know what a better I, – I often find myself wishing that th- – this is one of the, the few points in this whole series that continues to bother me to this day, that I, I wish that they had come up – you know, Roy Thomas, I guess I should say, had come up with something better. Yet, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm a firm believer that if, you know, if you don't have a solution, then don't bitch about things, you know? Yeah. And I don't have a solution to this. I, I don't know what would be better, you know? Right off the, you know, the first thing that that pops into my head would be, it'd be interesting, and I think he does do this somewhere down the line in in Young All-Stars. He plays off the, I don't know what you want to call it, conspiracy theory or whatever it is. You know, there's that legend that that Hitler may have had something to do with extraterrestrials, you know, like 
the extraterrestrials actually approached Hitler and something like that. And I think he plays with that a little bit in Young All-Stars. But the problem is with the extraterrestrial thing is that's become so cliche now that I don't really want to see extraterrestrials involved in this story to the point where they're the MacGuffin that keeps the superheroes out. And that, yeah, that, yeah there's that's no real good way to do in. it. That's the problem. There, yeah. there's, there's no real way to do it and not be able to poke holes in it like it's a piece of Swiss cheese. Well, the only other thing I can think of would be, you know, is there an existing supervillain of say specter strength like i don't yeah. know i don't i don't know that much about wotan but is yeah, wotan powerful enough to have cast the spell himself and have it stick yeah would it have been better to have like a bunch of evil magicians yeah come up with it and yeah. all that but but i i think that just goes into the fact that you know the whole sphere of destiny thing goes into the whole you know hitler's obsession with relics and and the Norse gods which is why you know I remember us talking for quite some time about why does the spear of destiny (laughs) the spear that pierced the side of Christ why can that call call the Valkyries right That makes absolutely no sense. It no, really it doesn't. doesn't. It it doesn't. But, it doesn't make any more sense than the Holy Grail having Norse runes on the side of it. I I just don't. Or Shazam, for that matter. When you really sure. think about it, should all those people really be together? No, but somewhere along the line, there was a really good story I read where it actually oh, okay. made sense of that. Was that War of the Gods? Might have been. Though I've never never heard a really good story in War of the Gods. Well, maybe it wasn't that one, but I I know there was a story somewhere along the line that I've read where it showed how Shazam met and, like, assisted or something all these different people that eventually became, you know, the the letters, you know, in the... uh, Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, Mercury... Right. Sorry, I'm tr- trying to do the filmation opening for you. <laughs> what what is that called? In uh, it's not an anagram. What do you call that? Uh, you know what I mean. I can't. Yeah, it's called. I can't think of it. I can't think of it either right now. But which yeah, makes me the, feel really silly. Yeah, me too. But you know, where he he met all these people, had something to do with him, and then basically was like, "Hey, Solomon, can I borrow a little bit of your brains?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure." And you know, eventually they put them all. You know, he puts them all together. I wonder if that was the Jerry Ordway series. It could be. I, I just know I've. I read need to reread something. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I loved and it. but it made a certain amount of uh, of sense out of it. Out yeah, of something. You know, that, that's the great thing is you get you get these creative types working. They can figure things out. Mm-hmm. It may not always be perfect, but it can pass, pass the smell test, basically. Right. Where it's just like, okay, that makes sense. But, you know, I, I liked that because that was something even as a kid I remember thinking that, you know, wait a minute, you know, Solomon's out of the Bible and you got, you know, <laughs> Hercules. You know, it's not these aren't even the same pantheons. So, well, how the hell does this work? But he made it work and it made it intelligent, so... Uh, my final notes are all pretty much related to the same thing. Uh, Rich Buckler's art and the fight scene he draws at the end. Man, he packs a lot of power into his fight scenes. Those punches look like they hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I'm a little uncomfortable at page 19. I appreciate his use of perspective. I don't need to see Dr. Fate's ass. But <laughs> on the next page, the very first panel 
on the next page is a vicious uppercut from Dr. Fate. Just wailing the shit out of Hawkman. I'm like, ow! <laughs> and just that entire fight scene on page 22, for example, that fourth panel where Dr. Midnight's fist is coming out of the smoke and hitting that Japanese soldier square in the face. Mm-hmm. Like, ow! And the whole thing with Johnny Quick and that, you know, page 23, that that kick Liberty Bell is delivering to that dude's face. I mean, it's just all so great. And you know what? I think it's his artwork and Ordway's artwork that made me like Robot Man. Because they're the first people that really drew him to look kind of cool and not kind of silly. Because mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of his Golden Age stuff, and it's goofy as hell. <laughs> Oh, he does. He, I mean, he does have kind of a silly look to him, anyway. Because for one thing, he looks like he's wearing a baseball cap backwards. That always <laughs> kind of bothered me. But he is—he is cool, you know. Uh, I, I really attribute it, like you, to both of those guys that make him look dynamic. Yeah. No, I'll totally agree with that. I mean, it's just if you, and that and that's the great thing about Buckler, and, and especially the great thing about Ordway is that they they gave a vitality to these Golden Age heroes that I'm sorry Dick Dillon just couldn't. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, and and you know, Joe Staten did a great job, as did Joe, you know, as did you know Wally Wood and all that. But it was just these guys especially drawing them in their element, in their prime. Like when they were the main heroes. Ah, it's just so great. Awesome. Uh, you want to get into the ads? Let's talk about ads. Well, we got another in the series of Expert Builder Series, Challenge 8860 from Lego. still like these things. It takes me <laughs> back. It's what my aunt would give me for my birthday, my Aunt Jenny. We got that creepy kid magician who's on his way to a D&D campaign with the bubble yum. <laughs> um, uh, that's the last time I'll do that joke, folks. I promise. I, I, I do apologize for that. Uh, we've got a kind of creepier than, um, what's his name? Willy Wonka. Yeah, Gene Wilder. Creepier than Gene Wilder. Willy Wonka, like this, this, this guy. I would worry that is like, you know, I wouldn't want to leave my kids alone with him, if you know what I'm saying. Because he looks, yeah, he just looks that way. Creepier than Gene Wilder is really saying something too. Oh hell yeah! I mean, because yeah, Johnny Depp could try all he wants. There, you know, the original Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory beats the hell out of Tim Burton's. I I can't, I can't watch that movie. I literally (laughs) cannot watch that movie. (laughs) My wife likes it because she likes Johnny Depp and she likes Tim Burton. It's one of the things we disagree about. No, I mean the Gene Wilder one. I can't. Why? I, oh, I just, uh, oh, oh. just like nails on a chalkboard. Just can't. I can't get into it. We can't be friends. And, no, just, <laughs> <laughs> that was Mike's bridge too far. Um, oh, we've got a, we've got a great ad here for snap tight models, which my father would be quick to point out are for complete pussies. <laughs> is that it's uh on the other side of the glossy section of the oh, you missed the tune time oh i see what you're saying yeah <laughs> your dad was a hardcore model builder wasn't he, he still is yeah he, oh, he awesome. builds you know, models yeah. cool. i like the fact i like it when people can keep that that one thing they always did even into their 
even into their later years. That's kind of cool. That's something I think my father wanted me to do, because I remembered when we were looking for a house in Allentown, we walked into one in the boys' room. There were all these model World War II era planes hanging from the ceiling, and uh, Dad's like, "Yeah, we could do that. That would be great." <laughs> and then I covered my walls with superheroes. There you <laughs> go. Uh, that that center page spread in the glossy section is CBS's Saturday morning lineup which consisted of the Quickie Koala show, which I watched way too much of. Oh, really? See, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. I don't remember Trollkins either. Neither do I. Well, you see, Kiki Koala was shown on USA's Cartoon Express in the early 80s, oh, okay. which was what USA would show during the evenings. So I watched that and the Hair Bear Bunch and a bunch of stuff like oh, that. I remember the Hair Bears. Yeah, I like them. Uh, oh, shit. See, these were on at 8 and 8.30. That's why I don't remember them, because I, I was, was I, yep, I'd sleep in on Saturday mornings. But I definitely remember the uh, Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show. Love uh-huh. that. The Popeye and Olive Oil show. Yeah, I'd watch a little bit of that. Uh, Black Star, which is on DVD. Yeah, I don't remember that one at all. But the next one, oh, the my Tarzan God. The Tarzan Lone Ranger show? Yes. Yes, I can remember. Chris Honeywell would attest to this. I know he remembers this. We used to have uh, a TV that had a like a like a dial on it, but not you know not the one where you'd like grab a hold of the button and turn it. This was one where you'd actually like rotate it with your thumb, you know, kind of like if you have like a wheel mouse type of thing. And if you did it just right, you could get between channels to where you would have the the video of one show and the audio of another. And we sat and watched this sewing show where this old lady was kind of like, uh, oh, what's her name? Julia Childs, except she was sewing instead of cooking. And there's one part where she's making, I don't know, she's making like a friggin' blanket or something. And you hear Tonto go, down here, Kimosabi, from this cartoon. And the woman looked down, and we just, you know, we were kids. We thought this was like the most hysterical <laughs> comedy we'd ever seen and just died laughing, right? Uh, the Tom and Jerry comedy show. This is when Tom and Jerry sucked. Yes. Because I'm sorry, give me those 40s and 50s shorts. The MGMs, those are the yeah. only good ones, yep. Oh, definitely. Because th- those are what uh, Boomerang will show at like 2 o'clock in the morning. Yep. And they'll show them with the black woman, goddammit. They hold up because my kids still watch those and love They're them. They're funny. Them. Yeah, they are funny. They're just... The, and the animation is so good, and then you would get into like the '60s and '70s stuff, and it's just like gag me with a spoon. <laughs> uh, the new Fat Albert show, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> uh, and the Zorro Adventure Hour, which I never watched, but uh, it's a filmation that. show, yeah. so I know it probably had the same music as the Tarzan Lone Ranger and the new Fat Albert, yep. and probably Star Trek as well and yep. Black Star. So. I know that the Tarzan show had the same music as Star Trek. I can't remember about Tar- about uh, Lone Ranger. I don't remember. But I know I watched a lot of the Lone Ranger one and really enjoyed it. Uh, another trip down memory lane. The NBC Superstar Saturday Pow! Uh, what has Smurfs and Space Stars and Spider-Man in a superpower hour? So we got the Flintstone comedy show again. Flintstones in this era suck. Um, <laughs> The Smurfs, which I watched way too much of as a child. I hate the goddamn Smurfs. Uh, you were at that age to hate the Smurfs, too. Uh, the new Kid Superpower Hour with Shazam! Mm-hmm. Where can, you know, I've seen some of like the, 
the live action things from that show, those were disturbing. Uh, Dude. All right, yeah. now. Tread lightly. That's all I'm going to say. Tread lightly. These suck. These were the okay. ones that were animated. And I think they were trying to ride the coattails of the live action one, but I downloaded a shitload of them not long ago. Oh, no, I'm not talking about the Shazam that. one. Oh, which one I are you talking, talking about? about the kid's superpower thing. Oh, the, the oh all right. high stuff. Because oh, okay, had, all right. They had I, the animated show, and then they had these live action, like, comedy skits. Okay, yeah, I have no idea about that. I don't know. I thought you were talking aired. about the live action Shazam, and I was going to say no because because <laughs> I can enjoy, because I can enjoy that. I can. I've seen like an episode or two because TV Land was showing them for a while. Mm-hmm. They were showing Shazam followed by Superman followed by Batman. Right, and it was kind of neat to see because I'd never seen the Shazam show. Um, so I'm not going to piss on your childhood either. So don't worry, it's it's not going to happen. So there you go. But the this, animated this... Shazam wasn't as good. No, it was terrible. Um, especially the Black Adam episode, which I was completely disappointed in. Um, we have the Space Stars, which has Space Ghost, the Herculoids, Teen Force, Astro and the Space Mutts. Astro and the Space Mutts. Really, people? Yeah. I don't Ooh. remember that one at all. Now, you want to talk about my freaking childhood? Spider-Man mm-hmm. and his amazing friends. I watched the hell out of that show. Holy crap, I watched that show. Uh, and when the Hulk came on with it, that was just like an hour where no one was allowed yep. to speak to me. Because it was just like, ah. And my favorite I think that's episode- where I learned who Stan Lee was from, was from the Hulk show. Because every Hulk episode was hey there, Stan Lee believers. here, true believer. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I'm kind of confused about this because you had the the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show on CBS, but you had the Daffy Speedy show on NBC. I have no idea how that worked. All I know is that this is why I never saw any Bullwinkle when I was a kid, because when the Daffy Speedy show would come on, I would just totally tune the fuck out and go do something. I hate Speedy Gonzalez, so could could not hang with that. The first thing I ever bought for my wife. Speedy Gonzalez? Rachel drives fast, and we were. Uh, it was one, on one of our th- fourth or fifth dates. It was it was a day we were just spending together up on the north side at Lenox Mall, and they had a Warner Brothers store up there during yep. this time period, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I bought a lot of shit from there. Me too. Should have bought more of those glasses that they had there because they had some great like drinkware with superheroes on it. Um, but. I saw the Speedy Gonzalez thing, and I showed it to her, and she's like, very funny. And I was buying some other stuff, and I bought it, and I put it in her car when she wasn't looking. <laughs> and uh, she she gave me that, I'm amused, but, meh, look. Um, we have a slot car thing, Magnum 440. Uh, I always th- you know, there's two other connotations of Magnum that should not be associated with kids' toys. <laughs> um, and Fast 111s, MPC uh, model kits. So I guess those are the good model kits. Yeah, I don't know. Your dad's MPC? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Which brings us to... <laughs> We've done this one. Are you sure? We're going to do it again anyways. Oh, we have not. I, I swear we I have am. not done this one, dude. Somebody will write in and tell me I'm right. 
probably just to get a ride. You talked you. about it on your on your Parasphere blog. That's probably why you think we've done this one before. But uh, do you want to be the penguin or do you want to be the cut? No, I don't want to be the damn penguin. I'll be everybody else if you want me to. <laughs> All righty. So, so you do the announcer and everybody All else right. and I'll do the penguin. Okay, this is the penguin in Penguins on Parade. And you've got these just eerily, creepily human-faced emperor penguins marching in a parade down the down the street. It's really disturbing. And you got people standing beside the street looking at him and going, and one dude goes, Look, a parade of emperor penguins! And another guy goes, Must be an advertising gimmick. Wah, you aren't looking at penguins, my dear. They're puppets in, pecu- in a pecuniary plot, which will soon thicken. While everyone's attention is engaged by my penguins, I shall take possession of the Emperor's sword. I can't, wait, let me say that again. Because I'm going <laughs> to say it right. The Emperor's sword. A king's ransom in gems and history. Because penguin looks like the type of guy that would say sword. Well, well, well. Somebody has left some hostess fruit pies. Easily accessible. Apple and cherry. Wah! I think a little stopover to enjoy some would not be amiss. Ah, this is the point where I really wish that I could do a really good Irish accent, but I can't. But the cops, there's two police officers waiting for the penguin, and they grab him by his legs. And I imagine one of them going, get your ass in here. He goes, we put Emperor Penguins and Emperor's Sword together and knew you had to be near. And the other cop says, and thanks to Hostess Fruit Pies, you're not only near, but caught. Oh, well, I don't get a fortune in gems, but... I did get the way light tender crust and the real fruit filling of Hostess Fruit Pies. The day wasn't a total lost, and now I'm going to go get cornholed. <laughs> now, what do you want to imagine these cops drive the drive the penguin out to the middle of nowhere first and beat the shit out of him before they take him to the <laughs> Now, damn, damn, it I, feels good to be a gangster. <laughs> <laughs> now, I had the same thought about this that I ended up reading on your on your blog so I hope I'm not uh, stealing it's anything okay. away from you but as soon as I read this my first reaction was holy shit a couple of ordinary beat cops actually captured a friggin criminal in Gotham City I was really <laughs> happy for these guys because you just never see that <laughs> So you want to do Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse? Let's do Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse. Okay, we've got Arax, Son of Thunder, number four, which, as I was telling Scott off-air, I'm actually going to start going through my run of this, because, well, I bought it, so I might as well. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I think they made action figures of Arax at one point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have that Best of DC, number 19. Me too. Yeah, I love the cover on that with Superman Red and Superman Blue. Yeah, too bad the story isn't nearly as interesting as this cover is making it seem. <laughs> Loved it when I was a kid, though. It didn't seem quite so simple when I was a child. <laughs> oh, God. DC Comics presents number 40, Metamorpho. Metamorpho, Metamorpho. I set him up, Scott knocks him down. See, I don't know <laughs> that I've ever read that story. Well, you see, it has Metamorpho in it, so I don't give a damn. <laughs> I it looks really fantastic. Don't, I don't like Metamorpho at all. No, the I only do. time I uh, there are two times where I've liked Metamorpho: Justice League Europe and that Justice League episode where Tom Sizemore did the voice of Metamorpho. And uh, I thought that was a really good two-parter. I liked it, 
but otherwise, I have no truck with Metamorpho. I, I understand the gestalt of the character. I understand he comes from that wacky period in the 60s where DC had books like The Inferior Five and Metamorpho and stuff like that coming on. Not my bag. Yep. I'm with you, brother. I, I, I never really understood the appeal of that guy. He's one of those guys I... I don't understand exactly how he survived the the 60s or wherever whatever era it was he popped up in cuz he seems very much a character of his era. But, you know, to each his own. Just never I don't think I've ever read a good story with Metamorpho. <laughs> you like that Green Lantern in a Batman pose Green, uh DC special blue ribbon digest number 16. That's interesting. I don't know that I've ever seen that before. It's interesting. He looks very uncomfortable. It looks like he's got a backache that he's trying to work out or something, like he slipped a disc or something. Oh, God. Sorry for the click, but this is the era of The Flash when Carmine Infantino came back. (laughs) And I think this was... Is that Colonel Computron? I don't know. I'm sitting here... I'm drooling over the uh, the Jonah Hex cover here because it's just ah. Oh, you know what the it. best part of that Flash number three hundred three is? What's that? Firestorm backup with Pat Broderick art. <laughs> I, I like don't, that Jonah uh, Hex cover. I do like that Jonah Hex cover. I'm trying to remember what the deal is with the backup dude here because he had a, uh, a a brief backup. I don't think it lasted long at all. And it was with an Indian character, and I don't even know how you pronounce this name. I'm going to say Tejano. Uh, that's just a guess. It's T-E-J-A-N-O. I don't think that character appeared for more than just a couple of issues, and I, for the life of me, I cannot remember what the deal was with that. So I'll be curious when I when I make it around to those issues in a couple of months. We'll, we'll see what the deal was with that guy. Very disturbing cover on Ghost number 107. Yeah. What the hell is up with that? I don't know. It looks like something Star Trek would do in the 60s. <laughs> what um, else? God, Justice hate. League number 197. Yes. Hey, uh, you need... Of that. I don't know if you, uh, if you listen or not, but uh, if you get the opportunity, check out when it rolls around next month um, the Comics Monthly Monday number 21 episode of Two True Freaks. We will be covering the anatomy lesson issue of Saga the Swamp Thing. It was the big game-changing issue of Saga the Swamp Thing written by Alan Moore. And the Floronic Man appears in that story. And there is a veiled reference to how he winds up where he had to get sprung from in Justice League of America 197. And I make a mention of that in the episode that, hey, Mike and I just covered that, so... Superman 366, I actually really liked that story. Superman goes undercover uh, as an alien monster lizard thing. (laughs) Really good story. It really was. I liked it. I like Action Comics 526. That was the Wolfman run, and he had a lot of good stories. Yep. Oh, God. Dial H for Hero and Adventure Comics. Talking about another thing I could give a crap about. You know, I'm so glad that you and I are on on such the same wavelength with some of these things, because that's another one of those I never (sighs) quite understood the appeal of at all. I I just don't get it with that. Great. You know, some kid, you know, waiting every issue to see if Lobster Boy finally makes it into the (laughs) book. (sighs) 
Now, I've never read it, but I like the cover to Brave and the Bold number 181. Yeah, I was just looking at that, wondering if I have that particular issue, but I, I'm not sure. I never, that was another team I never really liked much was Hawk and Dove. Just never really saw the appeal of those guys. It's like you got I Vampire and House of Mystery number 299. Yeah, love the cover on That's a very nice cover. Is that a Joe Staten cover on Green Lantern 147? I it is. you know what? that's uh, yes that is that's Joe Staten. I think that's that issue that I just picked up at the, at the flea market a couple weeks back. Now that I look, I've at had it. that for years. I read it once. I wasn't a really big fan of it. Um, I really want that unexpected number two seventeen. Yeah, because that's a great cover. Yeah, it's uh, the Lincoln Memorial, but uh, the Abe Lincoln that's sitting on the on the chair on the throne or whatever it's supposed to be. He's in a spacesuit. That how cool Ernie is Cullen. that? Yeah, it's just really cool. I love that. That's really neat. Very dynamic. Uh, and the, uh, probably, cover, I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead. I was about to say on the cover of World's Finest Comics number two seventy four. Um, that guy's got the weapons master has to realize that no means no. And, and that's all I'm gonna say. Darn it. Oh, that's messed up. Yeah, that is messed up. Hey, I like you, just not I don't like you. But two big ones that we passed over that uh okay. that I've gotta go back and talk about. One is Detective Comics number five oh nine, just because it has a really awesome uh, Jim Aparo cover on it with uh, with Catman yeah. cover, and I just get a kick out of that. Catman, I'm so glad to see that character finally having uh, stepped up in the comics and become an actual threat to somebody. I think that's cool, because he was always a character I thought had a lot of potential. And uh, the big one on this page for me, the one I just look at and go, oh, yeah is the uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover for uh, Detective, or excuse me, a DC special series number 27, Batman versus the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> well, with that, why don't we take a little break? Yep. And we'll hear from our uh, non-sponsors. <laughs> we'll come back and uh, we'll get into some other comic-y goodness. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider 
which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers, and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. To him, life is a great big hang up. Wherever there's a hang up, you'll find the Spider Man. I got the dogs and the burgers on the grill. The female companions are already deep in the first annual strip volleyball game. <laughs> and McC- Come on, Gillen, you know you have to take off your bottom. McLean is regaling Kirk with dirty stories. This is going to be the best summer ever. Ah, true that. It is the better a dark summer of fun. Hey, Michael. Hey, wait a minute. What's Shag doing here? You invited him. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. That's cool, I guess. Just one thing I don't get. What are all these cowboys doing here? You know what's going down. They're here for the contest, man. Ah, the Better in the Dark Summer of Fun Cowboys contest. Yeah, you know that. For the summer of 2010, we are doing a special contest where we want you to give us a thousand-word essay on your favorite cowboy movie or television show or a thousand-word weird western tale. These are the rules of the contest. We're going to go over them very quickly because there's not that many. Entries have to be no more than a thousand words. We will count these things. Please, folks, no 30-page essays. Women who think that their looks will influence us are heartily encouraged to send pictures. The winner is entirely up to myself and Tom, so no bitching about that. Affiliates of Hopework Press and Earth2.net are not eligible for this contest. And bribes not accepted, at least not while Tom is watching. Also, we should mention, you have to register at the official Better Than Dark boards at betterthedark.proboards.com. There will be a space set aside for you to submit your story or essay. And what do they get? Well, what they get is Volume 1 of the Grimjack Omnibus by John Ostrander and Timothy Truman. This is a wonderful packet that collects stories from Star Slayer issues 10 through 17 and Grimjack issues 1 through 13 as originally published by First Comics between 1983 and 1985. If you like cowboys, you like swashbucklers, you like demons, you like racy looking critters with four legs, this is the comic for you. Just by hearing this John Ostrand and Timothy Truman should be enough incentive for you to get it. This is a great way for you to get one of the two great comic series of the 80s in one package. That's not all you That's got. That's not all we got. We also have my first novel, Dylan and the Voice of Odin. So you're going to get an autographed copy by me, Naturalmente, included in that package. But yet, there's more! There's no more! You will also get a copy of the legendary Frontier Publishing Presents, the number one and only issue. Why should you want to have a copy of this? Because in it is the first and to date, notice I said to date, comic book story featuring my character Dylan. In the story entitled, Dylan and the Escape from Tosegio. 
The story is by me. The script is by Russ Anderson, mm-hmm. who is the editor of The Other All Prize, going to be given away. And the art is by Alex Kozakowski. And speaking of Russ Anderson, Pulpworks Press has agreed to give us, as the final bit of our little prize package, a hot-off-the-presses copy of How the West Was Weird, edited by Russ, and featuring stories by the both of us, as well as a bunch of other talented yes, people. Bill Katepi, Joel Jenkins... Lots of great people that we've talked about in very glowing terms in the past. It's got Aztec mummies. It's got zombie towns. It's got supernatural gunslingers. It's got naked Mexican chicks. What more do you need to know? I wish I wasn't giving this stuff away so I could enter the contest and get it. The deadline for this contest is August 28th, and we will announce the winner on a future episode sometime in September of Better in the Dark. Better in the Dark Summer Funk Cowboy Contest. From Veteran the Dark and Public Press, get to writing, partner. The deadline is August 28th. And join us all summer at www.earth2.net and www.loudcaster.com backslash channels backslash 214 hyphen movies about girls for all the madness on Better in the Dark Summer of Fun! Journey now to an unfamiliar world, not the one where the heroes of the Justice League stand proud, but Earth 2. Where Helena Wayne carries on her father's mission by battling crime as the Huntress. Okay, we are back for the second half of the show, and this time around we are going to be looking at the Huntress stories, beginning with Wonder Woman number 271. This is uh, the first Wonder Woman series. This is the September 1980 issue, cover by Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano. Original cover price, 50 cents. And we are looking at the Huntress backup. This is, uh, the credits on this one are Paul Levitz and Joe Staten are the storytellers. And Steve Mitchell is the inker. Story is entitled Into Darkness Once More. We open to some beautifully rendered nighttime scenes of the Huntress standing at the graves of her parents, the Earth 2, Batman, and Catwoman, where she lapses into a flashback concerning the beginnings of her latest case. Seems that earlier today, the artist and snappy dresser Winston Pitt burst into the law offices of Cranston, Grayson, and Wayne, seeking Helena's help. Three of his finest creations were burned to ashes beyond any dream of restoration while they rested on the walls of the museum, and Pitt wants to sue. Helena explains that th- that's not really her bag, but she promises to do something. And when Pitt looks up, Helena is gone. As the Huntress, she heads straight to the museum to investigate the crime scene firsthand, finding only Pitt's name on the tattered remnants of his art. She then proceeds to shake down Sydney the Fence for info on the job. But Sydney doesn't know much beyond the fact that Pitt's art was just gaining popularity and that even forgeries of his works were getting expensive. Her flashback over, the hunter snaps back to the here and now and makes her way home from the cemetery. But Helena is just barely inside before someone is knocking on her door at 3 o'clock in the goddamn morning. It's Harry Sims, DA for Gotham's Southern District, and he's come seeking Helena's advice. But she tells him to come see her during normal business hours about six hours from now and bids him good night. 
So he leaves and Helena thinks to herself, men, sometimes they can't even sign their names without a committee to help, which causes her to realize something that she'd seen but not fully registered at the museum. So it's back out on the prowl for the huntress. And as she swings to the museum, she thinks to herself that the signature, the signature that she saw wasn't really Pitt's. So the paintings were forgeries. But why? Arriving at the museum, she is just in time to witness the curator and some guards opening the museum vaults in order to extract a few paintings to replace the Pitt exhibit when suddenly they're attacked. The guards are taken out, and the curator is ordered to take everything out of the vault. And Helena realizes that she's really in the shit now because the criminal mastermind behind all this is Solomon Grundy. To be, too. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> to be continued. And, uh, you know, I've only got just a couple of notes on this. First of all, you know, I, I know I say this all the time, but Joe Staten's art, fan freaking tastic Love it, love it, love it. But, uh, all right, page two, third panel. We've got the secretary sitting at her desk, and... Uh, her boss is saying something to her, and she says, I'm sorry, Mr. Cranston, I've been a little distracted lately. And I'm thinking, this has got to be the most friggin' relaxed workplace I've ever seen because somebody there is always <laughs> saying something like this. Gee, I'm sorry, I spaced out, Mr. Cranston. Gee, I'm sorry, Mr. Cranston, I've got a lot of personal problems right now. I'm thinking, wow. So, page seven? Of the story, let's see, flipping, 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 page seven. Oh, here we are. Page seven, panel one. Harry is totally looking right down her nighty. Wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, that, that was that was my big note for this one is more sexy Helena art. And boy, on mm -hmm. that page seven, that fourth panel, she's got that I really want to do you look on her face. She does, actually, but she sends him packing anyway. That's kind of strange. Uh, she's got to do but uh yeah that's about it for the for me for this first what, what else you got on that first chapter of this interesting setup it's just solomon grundy really just came out of freaking nowhere yeah yeah which is interesting but at the same time it's like huh <laughs> yeah more more on that next <laughs> next chapter because i have a big note concerning solomon grundy's involvement in this story in this very next chapter, are we ready for the uh, very next chapter? We're ready for the next okay. chapter. Yes, we are. Wonder Woman number 272, the October 1980 issue. Cover on this one, uh, this time it's Dave Cockrum and Dick Giordano. And, you know, I'm not the biggest Dave Cockrum fan in the world, but this is a really cool cover. It's a very patriotic cover of Wonder Woman standing in front of the Capitol building, flag blowing in the breeze behind her, and she's got a giant eagle on her arm just really cool I'm, I'm a sucker for patriotic covers and uh this is a really good one and then in a little uh like triangular wedge at the bottom we've got uh huntress shooting a uh crossbow at uh solomon grundy and he's like swatting it out of the air it's pretty cool it's a really nice cover on this one so on the interior again levitt staten are the storytellers mitchell is the inker story is entitled the monster and the masterpiece so the Huntress orders Grundy to put the curator down, to which he responds that no girl can tell Solomon Grundy what to do. So Helena, very stupidly... Yeah, why are you so special? 
Go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> she very stupidly informs him that she's no mere girl, but the huntress of the Justice Society. And this is an extremely bad move, like a really, really bad move. Because, see, Green Lantern is in the Justice Society, and Solomon Grundy, he fucking hates Green Lantern. So Helena is guilty by association. And Huntress then gets the shit swatted out of her by one really pissed off white face swamp zombie. And as she lies unconscious, Grundy and the henchmen make off with all of the museum's stuff. And so a while later, Helena wakes and uh, she walks into her law practice where everyone takes turns telling her how awful that she looks. To which she answers, I had a rough night. Yet another goddamn thing on a long list of shit that you don't want to say at your workplace. <laughs> I'm telling you. So Helena calls Harry back to her office uh, while Carol, the receptionist, appears to be ripping off wads of money from the firm and stuffing it into an envelope for some mysterious purpose. Later, after Harry uh, has supposedly talked to Helena about whatever his deal was, that's important, remember that, she is playing waste paper basketball instead of getting any real work done when she gets to thinking about the art heist case again. So speculation about the forgeries spurs her back into action as the Huntress, and another quick visit to Sydney the Fence puts her on the trail of the one who ordered the forgeries in the first place. Arriving at the address, Huntress finds Grundy and his henchmen just hanging out with all their stolen swag. Grundy has apparently fallen in love with a statue of a pretty woman, and his goons comment to themselves on what a freak this Grundy guy is anyway. Huntress then tosses a smoke pellet in through the window and uses the distraction to take down the hired help all Batman style. But in the confusion, the pretty woman statue is toppled and the head breaks off. Distraught, Grundy latches onto the Huntress and begins to strangle her. As everything fades to black for our heroine, the last thing she hears is Grundy's taunting voice. Now Grundy do to you what you did to pretty woman. To be continued. And my only note for this one is... Who in the hell would be in a gang run by Solomon Grundy anyway? I mean, I know times You really need some work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Man, you know, the Joker will kill you, and the Penguin, he's all hands, even with the male help, because he goes both ways. Don't tell me he doesn't. Oh, come on. And Catwoman, she up and disappeared. Rumor is she was doing the Batman. You know, Two-Face, you know, which one? There's like 30 on Earth 2. You know, it's like, God, I can't get any work in this town. Solomon Grundy wants gang too. Okay. It's, it's, it's like being on a team led by the dumb Hulk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, there have been like 20 bazillion teams in the history of Marvel Comics not a damn one of them was led by the Hulk, okay? There's a reason for Except that. Except the Pantheon, but that doesn't really count. No, no. I mean, the stupid Hulk, you know? Yeah, exactly. Oh, um, God. My notes, I only got a few. I like the Batman shadow on the splash page. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grundy looks, like, really scary in some pa uh, places, and then really goofy in other places. <laughs> it's like Staten couldn't make his mind up 
Um, I'm really glad that that douchebag is no longer with this uh, yes. firm, by the way, because I... He needs some ass-kicking. I like the fact that Levitz is kind of laying the groundwork for subplots by having the, the secretary uh, sending off money to that shark-toothed creep. <laughs> so I, I forget how that turns around. Um, funny, that statue doesn't look like Julia Roberts. It looks like Princess Leia. Uh, but he keeps calling it Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman. <laughs> You know, she's got the buns in her hair, though, like Princess Leia, except she's yeah. got like also got a fez on top of her head. You know, the things that Grundy was going to do to that statue, I think, are better left unsaid. So, <laughs> Solomon Grundy need woman too. So. <laughs> but that's all I got. <laughs> all right, moving right along. Wonder Woman two seventy three, the November nineteen eighty issue. Cover, uh, Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano are back for another cover on this one. Same credits on the uh, Huntress story. This one's entitled Girl in a Gilded Cage. Huntress, who really, really, really ought to be dead, based on last chapter's (laughs) cliffhanger, wakes to find herself not at the pearly gates, but instead held in a makeshift cage suspended in Grundy's lair. Turns out that uh, inspiration hit Grundy at some point between these two chapters, and he's decided that instead of choking the life out of the superheroine, what broke his love toy, he'll simply replace it with the Huntress. He's become so enamored of the Huntress all of a sudden, in fact, that he got a perm between issues just to impress her for the occasion. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious, dude. Look at his hair. It does not match the previous two chapters. I I know, I know, I know, I know. I agree with you, so it's okay. At the offices of Helena's law firm, Harry Sims is pissing and moaning because Helena was supposed to meet him and she's nowhere to be found. He claims that she's already put him off twice, but if you'll recall, they did already have a powwow last issue, the details of which were left in the gutters. So anyhow, Carol, the receptionist, asks him uh, if it can wait, but he says it can't because some son of a bitch in the press already got wind of the story and ran it uh, on the front page of the Gotham Globe. And it reads, DA to crack down on vigilante heroes. Harry wanted Helena's input, what with her dad having been uh, a costume hero friendly police commissioner and all. But now he's committed thanks to the leaked press article. Back at Grundy's place, the Huntress tricks the big dumb brute into going into the next room to fetch her some art to look at, allowing her to effect an escape and take out Grundy's men. She rigs a trap for the pursuing Grundy, which tricks him into falling down a convenient hole and being swept out to sea through Gotham's sewer system. Later, at Harry Sims' press conference, Globe reporter Andrew Vinson, remember him from uh, Power Girl's origin story in Showcase 97 through 99? He is uh, handed a packet as Sims prepares to speak. He even calls, uh, excuse me, Sims even calls Vinson out for the Globe article, to which Vinson responds by asking if Sims w- would repeat his position. Does he still feel that costume heroes should be regulated, even after the Huntress has, this very afternoon, brought in the gang behind the museum robbery, a robbery the police couldn't solve? Sims responds that the Huntress has already decided to play judge and jury, so does Vincent 
really want to be around when she decides to play Executioner 2. And at this point, I'm thinking it's a damn good thing that uh, no one knows about the Huntress taking out the arsonist in that last story that we covered. Because <laughs> she pretty much did play Executioner in that particular story. So anyway, next issue. Well, not really, but still. Well, sort of, kind of. They would see it that way, I think. But anyway, next issue, um, Power Girl leaps into action as our Dynamite Damsels co-star in To Speak from the Shadows. And that story will be uh, forthcoming here in a little while. So, besides Solomon Grundy's hair, the only note I have, what I don't understand how she took Grundy down. Was this like an elevator shaft that fell all the way to the sewer system, or...? I guess. You see, the thing about the story... I just don't like it. No, I didn't either. I I really don't. And I hate the fact that Levitz pulled a Marvel Comics thing at at the end, like Reed Richards and everybody in the Fantastic Four in the first, like, five issues of that series, where if anybody showed any disinterest in the team, well... What's going to happen if they decide to go rogue? I mean, oh, God. No, it was just kind of goofy, <laughs> kind of silly. And, you know, it's got some good state and art, but, yeah, why isn't she dead? Yeah, see, I liked this. I was digging this story for the first two chapters. I really was. But then, really, based on the way chapter two ends, something bigger than I decided, you know, I changed my mind. I decided to keep you around. Something better than that needed to be the reason why she's not dead. Because, I mean, he's strangling. (laughs) He's he's got this absolutely maniacal look on his face. He's choking the life out of her. And we see, you know, we see his face from her perspective. Everything goes dark for her. So, yeah, you know. This just... I applaud the effort. I just don't think this is really and truly the 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 story you want to kind of lead off with in your wonder woman adventures (laughs) because at least the batman family stories uh outside of that first one which was kind of goofy at least those had like that you know like we said at the time that 1970s pilot you know live action superhero feel to them this had none of that this had the feeling of a filmation 1979 episode of batman you're right. You know, it's like, oh, well, all of a sudden it's Solomon Grundy, and the lesson we learned here is don't mess with Solomon Grundy's statue or he'll fucking kill you. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so That's a good lesson to remember, kids. <laughs> that'd be a great lesson to remember, because, well, you don't want to die. So I just think the stories get better, and then they get worse and they get better. Uh, I have only read these from the trade. I will be uh, going to my good buddy... Uh, Scott, actually, who's given me the, the issues to read. Um, not my good buddy Tor, but my good buddy Scott, who probably That's where got, I got these it from, from. Tor. <laughs> So in a roundabout way, they came from Tor. So well, I'm reading these from the from the, uh, the trade paperback position, because it's mm-hmm. just a little easier than looking at the computer screen. And I'll tell you, the, the only problem I have with doing it that way is like in the first uh, story you talked about, um... They black out the credits boxes, or mm-hmm. they block out something, 
at the bottom because it, oh no they don't those are crosses okay I'm gonna cut all that out because I look like an idiot no actually I had the I had the same thought when I was looking at the CBR of this and so I dug out the the physical issue because I, I do have 271 and 272. And that's when I realized that they were crosses as well. So yeah, okay. don't don't feel bad because yeah, it does look. If you look at the CBR, it does. It looks like something's been blacked out. It's like what the hell is going on here? Yeah. But yeah, I just I don't have too much good or bad really to say about this. It was a it was a story. You know, it, it played in the Earth Two playground. It had Solomon Grundy as the main villain. That's kind of goofy. I liked the scenes at her law office, even though it's the most relaxed, hippie-esque <laughs> office. Um, I'm waiting for the next time around. Somebody's going to say, well, you know, Mr. Cranston, I'm hooked on crack. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, geez, you know. So what are we looking at next week, Scott, for this? <gasps> we will be looking at Brave and the Bold, number 182, which stars Batman and the earth to robin and it's a good one i promise i'm I'm looking forward to it i get i get to do the synopsis on that one too (gasps) oh you suck well you get to do it for all-star number five okay (laughs) you feel better now you still suck but that's cool okay (laughs) uh, just running on past that uh let's knock out some emails because we didn't okay, get that last week. Um, alrighty, our first one is from our good friend John Wilson, host of the amazing Spider-Man Classics and Teenage Wasteland and Ultimate Spider-Man Podcast, or at least co-host, because there's a lot of other people involved in that. Hi, Josh and Donovan, Zach, what's up? Anyways, it says, cover. the first one is, there are two short ones. One says, coverage question. I understand the All-Star Squadron has a JLA appearance before their actual first issue. Can I assume this will be covered? Absolutely no. not. <laughs> Fucking hate that issue. Uh, by the way, your comments on an ep or two back about wanting to go all out on crisis coverage are very exciting. I say, don't hold back. Give that bad boy the thorough treatment it deserves, and it'll be my first time to read it. Though I've listened to the audio drama, so I know... Mo- oh, I am so fucking sorry. Oh, no, I am. You know what that audio drama is? It's it's a... It's, it's the Infinite Crisis 52 version of the Crisis novel written by uh. Wolfman, and that thing sucked. How can a man that wrote the story just completely botch the novelization? Yeah, I, I couldn't finish the book, I have to be honest with you. I bought it the day it came out, and I was so excited. Oh, but uh, Yeah, I, I could not, I couldn't finish it. I read the whole thing, but I was just like, oh, God. So, John, really, seriously, when we get into it, you're going to enjoy it so much better in comic book form. Yep. You're going to enjoy it so much better. So I'm looking forward to taking the journey with you folks. And believe me, John, we are just as excited. Yes. Oh, man. Uh, We've been planning it, folks. Uh, Just about every time we get together to uh, just chat, Scott and I talk about the crisis coverage and and how epic we are going to make it. So uh, I hope we don't make it so grandiose that when it finally comes out they're like, yeah, that sucked, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. What a letdown! 
John's next email is titled Episode 25. Congratulations on 25 episodes, gentlemen. Really digging the JLA-JSA crossovers. And by digging on, I mean wondering how much more I can take, but that's okay. Masochism's fun. Get a kick out of your ribbing on the end of IAQ's arc with the yuck-yucks at the end of the story. I was thinking this is a fucking Jerry Conway story, right? Can you imagine at the end of the Gwen, of the Gwen Stacy death or the Green Goblin death or maybe after Peter has faced off the clones of Gwen and himself getting together at the coffee bean for a big laugh-off with Harry and MJ? It's kind of <laughs> crazy. And that's all I got. Talk to you later. John. He's got a good point, though. Yes, he does. All right, next one we've got is from Eugene in Greenville, South Carolina. And he says, Dear Mike and Scott, longtime listener, first-time emailer. Just wanted to drop you a line to tell you how much I love the show. I know this sounds weird coming from a Marvel zombie, but I have to defend Superman beating down the wizard in action for 11 says, maybe he wasn't upset the wizard brainwashed him, which always makes the Man of Steel go postal. Maybe he was upset because he couldn't stop thinking about all the people who are probably dead because some jackass in a top hat made the Earth's greatest hero forget who he was. <laughs> the aliens didn't get their hostess cupcakes that week, so they burned, up, burned half of Metropolis to the ground. On the subject of when to do the Huntress backups and when to do All-Star, do alternating eps like Thomas DJ does on DJ's Comics Cavalcade. That's all I got, and that's Eugene from Greenville, South Carolina. Okay, the next one is entitled Great Show. I love it. I love hearing that. This one says, I have really been enjoying your look back at the JSA. These comics go back to when I started collecting comics off the spinner racks in the late 70s. I picked up most of the JLA issues when they came out and have gotten an almost complete run of All-Star from the bargain boxes over the years. I am going to be commenting on things over several podcasts, so bear with me, please. There is a Secret Society of Supervillains issue, number 15, and Cancelled Comics Cavalcade from this period that you are missing. This adventure uh, also is mentioned in the JLA story, that became the impetus for identity crisis as to power girls, sexual orientation. This is mentioned in the lightning saga in the new JLA and JSA series. Uh, when she mentions to speedy, she and Hawkman had been doing the nasty on Thanagar after the Ron ran Thanagar war. I did not know that. Okay. He continues uh, with an FYI. He says, if you are talking about any Jim Apparel art in this period, he always inked himself. Hmm. I, I thought he did, but I wasn't sure about that. He says, Joe Staten's art has always uh, felt cartoony to me. It was better in Legion of Superheroes at this time, especially after Leighton uh, left All-Star. My favorite work of his at this time was Brave and the Bold, number 148, which is inked by the aforementioned Apero. I'm not sure which issue that is. I'm going to have to look that up. Uh, who was always great inking other people's work, like Byrne on Untold Legend of the Batman, Thorne and Chow on some of the Wrath of the Spectre stories, and Perez on the cover of Batman and the Outsiders and the uh, new Teen Titans crossover. I forgot about that. Goes on to say, I always bought Brave and the Bold and JLA at this time because of the Apero and Dick Dillon art on Batman, much better than the Irv Novik and John Kalnan art that was on the regular books at the time. I don't know. I don't know about that. I might, I might argue on that one a little bit. 
He wraps up by saying, for me, John Romita Jr.'s art went south when he took over Uncanny X-Men from Paul Smith. Preach it, brother. He says, who was my favorite artist on that series? <laughs> it is like he started getting lazy, rushing to draw all those characters and carry that with him ever after. I will completely agree with that. He says, love the podcast and we'll talk again. Peace. And this is from Billy K. Thank you very much, Billy. I agree with many of the points that you made. Next one we got is entitled Alternate Universe Covers, and this is from Peter, Peter Zellner. He says, in case you don't know, the TV show Fringe is a show about alternate dimensions. Recently, DC Comics played a part uh, in one of their uh, storylines to celebrate this. They created numerous alternate history covers, much of, much of which are incredibly accurate to the originals. The, and he sent me a bunch of attachments here, and he says, I hope I am not the three, this is like three billionth, I think, person to email this to you, but uh, keep up the good work anyway. And I just wanted to say thank you very much, because you weren't the first person to tell me about it, but you were the only person to actually send me the attachments. And I appreciate it very much, because you're right, the uh, Justice League cover with Jonah Hex on it, pretty freaking cool. So thank yeah. you, Peter. That's the only one I liked, too. <laughs> I'm sorry. Every time another artist does that Perez Crisis number 7 cover, it just it bothers me. To be perfectly honest, I didn't really give that close of a look to all the other covers. I mean, I glanced them over real quick, but the one that, uh, that I really loved, the one that everybody was pointing out to me was the Jonah Hex one. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. But thank you, Peter. I do appreciate that very much. All righty. We, we got a good meaty one from Jack Perez saying, Gosh, I've been enjoying this. Awesome. That's another thing. Yeah, I like hearing that too. Hi, Scott and Mike. Hope all is well. Eh, it could be better. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting better. But anyways, but you don't, you're, you're not wanting to hear about my personal life. Anyways, first off, I'm all caught up on Tales of the Justice Society of America podcasts. Or as he writes, T O F T J S A. True, it's caught, way too long. <laughs> I've caught up after uh, th after things thawed out up here, and the spring clean is up. But that's boring. But that's boring crap to hear about. Let me run through what everyone should learn from your show. One, Jonah Hex is awesome. Goddamn straight. Two, Superman is an existentialist. He is concerned with the plight of the human condition, understands the despair and isolation, and displays leadership for what he can strive to do through his action. He just came out a bit too moody this time with JLA JSA. Three, the mist is one stolen cold killer in uh, Secret Society of Supervillains. Four, Power Girl is built and is a computer programmer. Honestly, this thing keeps getting better and better. I am eerily waiting, All-Star Squadron. I'm really looking forward to it and a great review of the last days of the JSA. That'll be next year. Mm -hmm. We won't be getting into that. You glossed over Earth 2 Wonder Woman. I'm fine with that. You can't do every Earth 2 meetup or story. Would you do Brave and the Bold number 182 next week? See, even my dog wants us to do Brave and the Bold number 182. <laughs> and it is more awkward Earth Batman Earth 1 moments than just talking to Huntress. Imagine seeing your own headstone. How, f how far could you go with covering the JSA? Would this mean Young All-Stars is out uh, and the same with Infinity Incorporated? Hell no! They are both in. You know, we've had a lot of people ask us that, and I don't understand what part of we're covering everything related to the JSA <laughs> people are not hearing. 
Um, the first few issues of Young All-Stars are great. Some of the scenes with Iron Monroe are amazing, such as after he visits a lady, he runs into action, pulling his fly up. <laughs> Odd stuff. Yeah, Iron Monroe was a horn dog. He got that from his dad. Yep. Yeah, isn't that right, Boo? Also, having a barbecue during Fan Expo. Heard you guys aren't in the area, but if you are, let me know. Saw the announced guests for Fan Expo. I wonder if Adam West and Shatner will duke it out. Shatner would beat the piss out of him. Yep. And I'm a Batman fan, but still. Kirk. Yeah. One last thing. Keep hearing you guys read the critical letters of the show. How awesome is it that you actually do that? I wouldn't, but I'm a cruel, petty, and vindictive man. And people writing in the... You guys are too negative? First off, you guys obviously love the JSA and comic books in general. You say that at least 20 times a show. So it's not the material of the show. If they are more concerned about your attitude, your approach is great. People should keep in mind a leopard can't change its spots and no one can change a leopard. So just delete those messages from people. Now, if they had a different take on the material, i.e. a different, differing opinion of what is related to the discussion, the more the merrier if you want. Thanks again. Keep it up. Best, Jack. Appreciate it, Jack. And uh, no, I mean we we enjoy covering both sides of the fence. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I love the the emails that praise us for what we're doing, and uh, you know we try to take um, constructive things from the emails that you know have cr- criticism in them as well. So uh, you need that. You need that to keep you honest and keep you focused and all that sort of thing. It's just, uh, I will agree with you, uh, I think some of them have been a little overly harsh as well. So. Oh, it's just, you know, when it comes down to saying things like, you know, you guys don't like anything, I mean, that's that's kind of ludicrous. I mean, there are the, but, but there is that, there is that sect of fandom out there that believes that, you know, if you say anything negative, you're just one of those people that is trying to bring comics down. You know, mm-hmm. everything should be liked. You know, we should say nice things about everything and say nice things about, you know, artists and writers and stuff. And, and I like to think that the best thing to do is that if you don't like an artist, say why you don't like an artist. Right. Say why you don't like a writer. And if you like one, you know, sing that person's praises. It's not kissing anyone's ass. It's just expressing right. your opinion. And I, you know, I think we're good at that. I really do. And I'm not trying to just, you know, toot our own horn here, but I think we are good at that. I think when we have, you know, when we don't like something, I don't think we've ever, to my recollection, have ever said, you know, a blanket statement, well, that just sucks and left it at that. You know, I think we've gone into why we didn't like something, you know, if we didn't like it. And I don't think, for that matter, I don't think we've ever just said something sucked. I think we've said, you know, I don't really care for that, or I don't really like that, or that's oh, I'm not. Sure, my... I'm sure we've said something sucked, Scott. That's 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 in your vocabulary, and my vocabulary to say so. But but I mean, but, we've gone into yeah. why we didn't care for it. I, well, I believe anyway. Well, look at Joe Staten. I mean, we have on numerous occasions gone off about how great Joe Staten's art is and how much we love mm-hmm. it in you know in, in this issue or that issue but then there are times where it's like wow that chin's really damn wonky <laughs> so you know nothing is perfect and i think a creator a creator worth their salt will listen to somebody talking about their work and pick out the wheat from the chaff right meaning if if somebody's making a blanket statement like you said of well this this just sucks and i hate it and, and 
why are they even drawing and they should go they should take anatomy lessons or n- not like you know the Alan Moore anatomy lesson but <laughs> you know and all that and you know this art is great but man this one panel I mean what happened here right uh, because it guaranteed most of them will be like yeah I had issues with that too so that's just my opinion I mean honestly the only I think really the only uh feedback we've gotten so far that is that has bugged me I'll, I'll put it diplomatically is the one that said you know flat out that we hate everything you know and really ran us down for the show that one bugged me only because it's just simply not true no not at all i mean if it, i i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't maintain this energy level that i have for any of the projects that i do you know out of pure hate i just couldn't I no, do it because it, it, I enjoy the material and I, I enjoy talking about it and I look forward to getting together with with you or Chris or you know even my solo project now and and recording it. I look forward to it. It's it excites me and it makes me interested in all that and I wouldn't be that way if it was something where, you know, I I wanted to use the the microphone as a platform to bitch and complain about something. I just I can't maintain that kind of a, a an energy level for negativity. I just can't. Well, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. You know, it, it takes how many muscles to frown and how many muscles to smile? Well, you know, apply that to it. It takes this amount of emotional energy to talk about something you like and, you know, 13 billion times more to, to, to bring the vitriol. And, it's you know, it's why I've walked away from current comics. I'm mm-hmm. tired of being angry right? about something that-, that I should be enjoying. I think you and I are both very good at when we when there is something negative like that that we pretty much get it out of our systems and then are do our best to avoid it because there's mm-hmm. certain things you know that that we go out of our way now to not talk about because we feel like we've been there done that why keep bitching about the same thing so yeah I, I reject and, that. And we're I, not the dancing monkey that will <laughs> somebody's just trying to wind up so they can hear us clap our cymbals together so. exactly exactly <laughs> well moving right along here the next one is entitled episode 28 you guys really can't wait to get to all-star squadron can you he says hey guys Well, we've hit an odd time in the history of the show as we've got an entire episode devoted to a mediocre Power Girl story. It's funny how both the Huntress and Power Girl went in different directions in both origin stories and popularity as time went out. Huntress had the better origin. I completely agree. It was told in a way that gave you both a great Batman of Earth 2 story and a tragic story. When it comes to Power Girl, it seems like they squished two types of stories together, both an origin story and a let's introduce you to this character that went uh, through crazy events story. It just didn't have the same resonance as the Huntress story did. It also It's also interesting to me that once we hit the post-crisis universe, these two characters were the epitome of how changing a character could go wonderfully right or horribly wrong. The Huntress was the perfect example of taking an idea and doing something new with it. Helena wasn't Batman's daughter anymore, but they developed her character to a nice point where she started out rough and grew uh, to be an effective hero. Power Girl was so mangled after the crisis in that her origin kept changing. Thankfully, when JSA kicked back in and she joined the team, she was gaining attention for something besides her large bust. She was growing as a character, but had a long road of bad origins and inconsistent writing. 
now they're both at an even level in terms of popularity. Hmm. I don't know. What What do you think about that? Do you agree with I, that? I don't quite agree with that because I still think to a certain extent that the um, the, the Huntress is kind of the red-headed stepchild of the Bat universe. Yeah, she's in Birds of Prey. But I don't know if that necessarily... And they're doing good things with her, but I don't necessarily think that makes her a popular character. I mean, she doesn't have her own series, and Power Girl does. Mm-hmm. Now, is that going to be any good now that Palmiati and Gray and and, um, and Amanda Connor are leaving? I, th- I think with Jed Winnick coming aboard, that title is going to take a long, fast train to hell. But, because um, I'm not... Well, maybe. Jed Winnick sometimes does good things with solo characters, but since the brunt of the DC Universe these days is to make everything edgy and mature through the eyes of a 15-year-old, um, which is why in the, you know, in the previous letter when it's like, well, Power Girl's been doing Hawkman. I mean, what? Are we all fucking 10? Really? Uh, they were having sex. Uh, isn't that cool? That makes us mature. Uh, anyways. <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't think they're, they're on an even level in terms of popularity. It's nothing against Jose. It's just uh, I don't quite agree with the statement. I'd like to re-examine that somewhere down the road where we've got a little more time to really mm-hmm. get into that because I, you know, I don't I don't know if I could agree because to me it's exactly the opposite. I think that Power Girl, I don't want to say benefited from the crisis, but I think she struggled through the crisis and uh, emerged a better character in the long run. Whereas I still maintain that. Uh, uh, in the long run, I kind of wish that Helena had not survived the crisis in any form because I think the current version of the Huntress is a, a, an extremely pale imitation of the of the pre-crisis one. I just, without her being tied to the Batman's uh, family and and her origin being tied to him, I just don't see the point of her character. But that maybe that's just me. But anyway, moving along in his email, he says, "You guys said that the 1950s would be a perfect mining ground for stories of the heroes who left the scene. I couldn't agree more. I would love to see a mini or anthology series detailing who decided to hang up their tights altogether and those who kept fighting the good fight, albeit in the shadows. I would love to see the continuing stories of our man still giving it a go." what Iron Monroe and Phantom Lady were up to uh, against Baron Blitzkrieg, and more adventures of the Starman of 1951, just to name a few. God, yes, I would love a book like that. Mm-hmm. He says, however, I know that it probably sounds better in theory than it does in execution. I don't know, man. If you got the right people on a project like that, I think it could be great. Uh, he continues, I'd want to see something like this done in the style of the late 80s, early 90s, when ideas like this were both possible and interesting. I have a feel if something like this were done today, it would be told in one in one main miniseries with two or three other miniseries to fill out, uh, fill out a trade a la DC's first wave. Yeah, he's got a good point. Probably would. Well, I know these in-between episodes are tough, given the material, but this was a fun episode nonetheless. However, I know it, you know it, and the rest of the listeners know it. We want All-Star Squadron. Every week, the anticipation builds. Just one question, though. Will you be covering the preview insert or jump straight into issue number one? We have given up on doing All-Star Squadron, and we have decided that we are going to do Angel Love. 
Yeah, I think I think it's a series that didn't get a fair chance. I, I think that uh, you know it, it was the series about a young girl, you know, existing in the big city and, and having to go through you know romance and, and the dangers of drugs and alcohol. And I own that entire series, and I've never read it. I don't even know why I bought it. I can't tell you why I bought it. Really and truly, I mean, seriously, right after the crisis, we're going to come out with Angel Love. Really? Really, DC? <laughs> Next month, Sonic Disruptors. <laughs> Great, so we can have a podcast that that has... Uh, that ends before it's time too. <laughs> Alrighty, our penultimate email for this week is from Stan Johnston. It says, My back issue hurts. <laughs> it says, Hi guys. Nice job summarizing the Power Girl issues of Showcase. Unfortunately, I didn't like the stories any more than you did, which is disappointing. The whole thing read like it was originally supposed to have been two separate stories, but was reworked for some reason to tie everything together into one. It didn't really work, whatever the case, and the thing with Power Girl's creepy ship reminded me of a book I read years ago by Dean Kuntz called Demon Seed. The art was pretty uneven, but better with Dick Giordano's ink. What was Staten and Big Teeth was noticeable during the All-Star run as well. You mentioned the full-page ad for Firestorm in issue, in issue 97. It was indeed a nice piece of artwork. Unfortunately, Milgram was never a favorite of mine, but his Firestorm work has been was some of his best. You asked where people listen to your podcast, so I thought I would enlighten you a bit. I'm, I'm mostly in the den at my PC when I'm working on something or just suffering, surfing the net. Suffering the net. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you have to suffer the net. Uh, surfing the net, but I also listening during the drive to and from work. Occasionally, I listen in bed with my iPod before I go to sleep. However, I don't listen at work because I prefer music or something I don't have to stay engaged with. Stan. That's fair. I like that. I like that he's actually engaged with it. You know, because the people that tell me that, that they listen to the show while they, uh, you know, while they watch TV or, or you know, the, the one that I always laugh at is where they tell me, I listen to your show while I'm laying in bed at night and I'm thinking... <laughs> well, well, not only that, but you know, it's like I don't, you know, I I, I don't want to think that I'm like lulling people off to sleep, you know, that they're using it as some sort of sleep-inducing mechanism for their well, insomnia or something. Before, so really <laughs> <laughs> What's with Staten and the big teeth, dude? In the 1970s, everybody had ginormous teeth. Have you, have you not looked at pictures? Go back and look at a history book. Everybody's teeth, ginormous, man. It was an epidemic. An epidemic? <laughs> <laughs> All right. The final one of the show is Challenge of the Super Friends and Earth 2. He says, hello, Mike and Scott. I recently began listening to the tales of the Justice Society and wanted you to know... I uh, wanted to let you know, rather, how much I'm enjoying the podcast and catching up on the episodes I missed. Oh, thank you. This is, it's nice to share your enthusiasm for characters like Huntress, Power Girl, Star Spangled Kid, and the grown-up Robin of Earth 2. Once or twice I've heard you reference the now-classic Super Friends cartoons from the 1970s. Though sometimes described today as set on a version of Earth 1 animated... 
I thought you might find of interest a few ways that the show drew from Earth 2 during the Challenge of the Super Friends era, 1978 to 1979. The Challenge episode, Secret Origins of the Super Friends, specifically stated that Wonder Woman left Paradise Island in 1941. Is this the episode where, like, the villains go back and witness the origins of all the heroes? Because I think I remember replace, this episode. And then replace them so that they will become, like, uh, Cheetah defeats Diana during the... Uh, right, right. During all that, yeah. Because this is that episode that frustrated the shit out of me. It's like, okay, if you can go back in time and see Superman leaving Krypton, why don't you keep watching the tape for another few minutes and see the Kents pick him up so now you know what his secret identity is, right? Jesus, that kind of thing drove me crazy. Anyway, uh, Wonder Woman must have returned home after World War II and stopped aging for a while before returning to the free world in the 1970s cartoons. Well, isn't she an immortal? Yeah, I, th- I thought she was. Yeah, okay. So her animated arch enemy Cheetah resembled Priscilla Priscilla Rich, the yes. Cheetah from the nineteen forties. Okay. Although Batman and Robin almost always worked together on the show, the Boy Wonder was treated as a full member of the animated Justice League by the time junior members Zan and Jaina made their debut. While the trainee Wonder Twins appeared only in the breezier all-new Super Friends hour of the late 1970s, Robin also joined the adult heroes on the relatively sophisticated challenge of the Super Friends. In other words, this version of Robin was following the path of the Earth 2 character who transitioned into a seasoned adult Robin instead of the path of the Earth 1 hero who would become Nightwing. You know, that's a good point. I never yeah, really is. thought about that before, really but he's absolutely right. Yeah. He says, I'd be interested in hearing any thoughts you both have on the show. And this is from James. Well, thank you, James. I appreciate that. You know, um, I wasn't sure where you were going at first, I'll be honest. But, yeah, I I completely agree. I never really consciously thought about it before, but you're absolutely right. That's a a very good observation. You know, even though I just made fun of of that episode of Super Friends, I have the the deepest love and respect for the Super Friends because I suspect that they owe very, very heavily to my having always been first and foremost a DC boy because I just can't remember a time as a kid uh, before the Super Friends. I I just grew up with them and loved watching those cartoons and have very, very fond memories of certain episodes. Like, uh, you know, probably my favorite one, the one that I'll still watch today if I'm flipping channels and it comes on, I'll still watch it. And silliness and everything taken into account, I still think it kicks ass, is the one where Superman winds up in the evil universe. Oh, yeah. Well, well, come on. That comes from somewhere, though. Oh, yeah. That comes from uh, it's like the mirror universe, Super Friends. Yeah, yeah, have, it is. Doesn't Batman even have a goatee in that in that universe? I don't remember if he has a goatee. But he has the red. I always called it the Red Devil outfit because he looks like like a Red Devil version of Batman. I just thought he looked really cool. And you know, uh, that, that's one of my favorites as well. I really yeah. like that one. I love that one because not only for Superman being in the evil universe, but what was even better was the evil Superman was loose in our universe. And I always liked those stories of our world having to deal with a Superman or somebody on Superman's level 
without Superman being around. That's why I'm such a big fan of the Phantom Zone miniseries, uh, that story oh, in that. Because, yeah. Yeah, the Phantom Zone villains get loose on Earth and Superman is nowhere to be found. And so the quote-unquote regular superheroes like your Batman, your Wonder Woman, your Green Lantern, suddenly they've got to deal with pissed-off, crazy Kryptonians tearing everything in sight up. I love stories like that. I'm a total sucker for those kind of stories. And even though this was Super Friends, you know, and very, very kiddified, that Superman was still an evil bastard, you know? And I loved it. It was great. It felt. It feels edgier to me than any other episode of Super Friends ever did, and I think that's why I liked it so much. You know, he I mentioned like- the the relatively sophisticated challenge of the Super Friends. I, I think he's got a point there. They mm-hmm. were a little more amped up in oh, regards yeah. to uh, to being a superhero adventure. I, I think each subsequent incarnation of the show got a little more advanced because by the end of it um the last one i watched anyway i don't know if it was truly the last incarnation but the last one i watched was the one where uh i'm not sure what the name of it was but it was the one that had cyborg and firestorm as members what was that superpowers i think yeah it was uh galactic super Friends. it was super friends the legendary superpowers show and the last season was superpowers galactic guardians galactic guardians against, yeah. uh, darks where they went up against Dark Side. Yeah, see, I, I like that stuff, and to me, that leads fairly directly into the uh, the 1988 Ruby Spears Superman because I don't think that there's I don't think there's a far cry between those two either. There is an episode of one of those Superpowers seasons. I, I, th- I think it was the Galactic Guardians one that had the, with the Scarecrow. That was flat out the best episode of Super Friends ever. Hmm. Because it actually treated the Scarecrow as like a credible threat for the first time. <laughs> where he was going around making people go batshit crazy. And uh, Adam West was doing the voice of Batman by that point. Huh. Uh, so that was kind of... In- yeah, he, he in, the, in the last two seasons, he, w- he was Batman. So I thought he always was Batman in Super Friends. No, it was Olin Soleil. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was Batman on that Filmation Right. Yeah, maybe that's why I was thinking he always did it. So, Somebody uh, told me that that Batman, the Filmation Batman series, is uh, is out on the net somewhere to be downloaded. I'm gonna have to see it's if it's out on DVD too. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh they wow. Released, they've released that one. They released the Filmation or the first season of the Filmation '60s Superman series. They're about to release the Superboy shorts from that huh. uh, from that series. So. The, the thing about Super Friends, it's it, like you said, it, it was it was omnipresent in my growing up. Uh, I, I started life kind of out as a Marvel fan, just because I liked the Incredible Hulk TV series and Spider-Man and his amazing friends and all that. But uh, I was always a big fan of Batman, thanks to the Adam West series, and Superman, thanks to the Christopher Reeve movies. Uh, and Super Friends, I mean, it was just, you know, where are you going to see that many superheroes all together? Right. You know, right. Yeah, yeah, I was more interested in Superman and Batman and Robin because those were the characters I was more familiar with. But you know, Challenge of the Super Friends was was uh, I have that on DVD. I have some of the others on DVD. They're they're basically in the process of releasing the entire series or the various series uh, because the two Superpowers ones are out. Right. And uh, the challenge is out, and they like have a thing of the lost episodes. 
which which is kind of interesting. And now they've put out two. Uh, by this point, I think there are two volumes of the hour-long Super Friends series that premiered in 1973. Hmm. Show is an hour long. Oh my god! I can't even fathom animating that much. <laughs> <laughs> but you know. You can look back, like a lot of stuff from that era, you can look back and you can make fun of it for being cheesy, and you can make fun of it for being not as sophisticated as the Bruce Tim uh, various DC works. And, you know, I, I hold that in very high regard. I think Bruce Tim has done the, uh, and his cohorts have done the animated DC universe that I want to see on TV. But that doesn't change the fact that I was, you know, I grew up as a kid watching the Super Friends. I mean, you just, I can't get around that. And uh, well, it's two, com- yeah. I mean, it's apples and oranges. It was, it was yeah. for two completely different audiences to serve two completely different purposes. And I think, uh, I think it did very well because it was, it was aimed at kids. It was to thrill kids. And uh, some of the uh, the episodes for a time there were actually intended to teach a moral. Uh-huh. And I, I think it I think it worked very well in that capacity. You know, is it simple? Is it is it kind of silly? Yeah, but at the same I, I, rate I, I, the moral thing kind of gets to me as an adult, but but I mean that was very very common on kids yes. shows of that time, you know. That that was just Saturday morning cartoons, you know. You you got to the end of it and you were preached at a little bit. And that, but to the, me, is why you don't ask the babysitter to take off her clothes. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think the, the, the best shows of that period are the ones that could have the moral, that could, that could do that preaching to you, but you didn't really even consciously realize it. You know, it, it was just part of the show that you looked forward to, you know, when, you know, Captain Marvel or whoever would come out at the right. end of it give you the little speech some of them i looked forward to and others i was like oh god you know well i i I kind of poke fun at that in this week's back to the bin so i can't really say that i like (laughs) it because i do because god i wish (laughs) come on i wish that they would bring that back i really do how awesome would it get be to get to like an end of a star trek episode and captain kirk comes out to give you the moral that green women are all sluts that would be awesome (laughs) thank you for listening to another exciting episode of tales of the justice society of america hosted by scott h gardner and michael r bailey if you like this show check out back to the bins where mike and i talk about random back issues from the past you can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. 
Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to victory.